Now today, friends, we come to First and Second Chronicles, and we not only have come down from the mountaintop of Romans, but we are now on the desert. And a great many people find these historical books of the Old Testament very uninteresting. I'm delighted to have so many people say that in our trip through the Bible that they have found it extremely interesting so far. Well, I would say that First and Second Chronicles probably is less interesting than any of the other books. And yet, I believe that this is a thrilling portion of the Word of God. Now, we're going to move more rapidly through this section than we've moved heretofore in any particular place. And I want you to just listen to the introduction we'd like to put down to the two books of Chronicles. Now, the two books of Chronicles and Kings are very similar in many ways. Many treat Chronicles as if they were just cabbages and kings. Are the Chronicles a duplication of kings? They cover the same ground all the way from Saul to Zedekiah. And isn't that a duplication? It goes over the same historical ground. Well, may I give a very emphatic negative to that? No, they're not the same. The Greek translators gave these two books the title of Things Omitted. That's a good title, but it doesn't cover the entire ground, and it's not quite adequate. There is more here than that which does not occur in the other historical books. This is another instance of the thing we called attention to at the beginning of this study, the law of recurrence or the law of recapitulation. The whole program and policy of the Holy Spirit in giving the Word of God is to give a great expanse of truth and cover a great deal of territory and then come back and pick out of that that which they want to enlarge upon. It's as it were that the Spirit of God takes up a telescope, looks over the landscape for us, and then takes a particular section of it and puts it under the microscope and let us look at it. Now, that's what's happening in First and Second Chronicles here. Now, we've seen this law in operation before. Remember, Genesis 2 goes back over the seven days of the first week of creation and lifts out one thing, that's the creation of man. Well, that for us is pretty important since we belong to that race. And that's what First Chronicles is going to emphasize to us. Now, we also have something else here that's similar to that which we had in Deuteronomy. Now, a great many people think Deuteronomy is just a repetition of giving the law, the name of the book, Deuteronomy, the second law. Well, actually, we saw it was not repetition. It was the interpretation of the law in the light of 40 years' experience with it in the wilderness. And there were many new things to be added, and interpretations were to be given. Now, what we're going to find here is this. God goes over the ground which has been covered in First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, in order to add details and to emphasize things which he considers important. 
Now, this is exactly the case in First Chronicles that we're coming to right now. For instance, David is the subject here in First Chronicles. Now, in Second Chronicles, the house of David is prominent. And the emphasis is put upon David in First Chronicles. The history of Judah is given in Chronicles, and the northern kingdom is practically ignored when the division came. And David's sin is not even mentioned in Chronicles. Why? Why didn't God mention it here? Well, when God forgets, he forgets. When God says, I removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, that's a long distance. It's so far that God doesn't even bring it back again. He doesn't mention it here. When God forgets, he forgets. And the temple in Jerusalem are prominent in Chronicles, and in Kings the history of the nation is given from the throne. But in Chronicles, it's given from the altar. In Kings, the palace is the center, while in Chronicles, the temple is the center. And we're going to have something to say about the temple, by the way, which we didn't say before. Now, in Kings, the political history is given, and in Chronicles, the religious history is given. Chronicles is an interpretation of Kings Hence, you have that constant reference in Kings to Chronicles. You remember we noticed in Kings, as it's written in the Chronicles, as it's written in the Chronicles. Why? Because Chronicles is the interpretation. Now, Kings gives us man's viewpoint. Chronicles gives us God's viewpoint. And as you read Chronicles, and you're going to find these first few chapters very uninteresting, I warn you, but you're going to also find that you're getting now God's viewpoint. And that's very important for us to see. Notice these first few chapters here, because I'm not going to read these chapters because it's nothing in the world but a genealogy. Notice how it begins. And actually, you have here one of the most remarkable passages that's in the Word of God. The first nine chapters here contain these genealogies. And in many senses, this is one of the most remarkable passages of the Word of God. Notice how it begins. Adam, Seth, Enoch, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, you've covered a whole lot of ground there in just four verses. And these four verses are nothing in the world but the names given of these at the beginning. Now, that's important to see. It's all important to see. Then you'll notice that you pick up the sons of Japheth. Then you have the sons of Ham. Then you have the sons of Shem. And if you'll notice, the same policies followed here that was followed in the book of Genesis, that the rejected line is given first, then the line that's to be followed to Christ is given and in these first nine chapters, you have the genealogy that brings you from Adam all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in that genealogy you have given in Matthew, begins with Abraham and comes to Christ. In Luke, it begins with Adam and comes to Christ. Now, you have that emphasized here. Then you have the line of Shem, and that line leads to Abraham. Then you have Ishmael's sons given, and the sons of Keturah, 
and the sons of Esau, and the early kings of Edom, and the dukes of Edom. And then you have given the sons of Jacob. You follow in Israel now. Then you come down to the posterity of Jesse. And Jesse had a son by the name of David. And you're going to follow his line. And that line's important. And you have the family of David given in chapter 3. And you find out that he had some sons we didn't know much about before. They weren't mentioned in First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings at all. Verse 5, chapter 3, these were born unto him in Jerusalem. Shimeon, Shobab, did you ever hear of them? Nathan and Solomon. Now, that's interesting. We know about Solomon, but somebody says, we haven't heard about Nathan. Well, if you go over to the genealogy of the Lord Jesus... That's in the Gospel of Luke. You'll find out that the line goes through Nathan to David and not through Solomon. So you have both Mary's and Joseph's genealogy given. In Matthew, he gets the legal title to the throne of David. And in Luke, he gets the blood title to the throne of David. That's pretty important to follow. Then you have the genealogy of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I'm not going to go through all that either, friends and read that. But I want to say to you, it's profitable for us today. And so, I'd like for you to notice something here in these first nine chapters. Nine chapters of genealogies. His children. Whose children? Adam's children. It's the longest genealogy in Scripture, and it's remarkable because it's the longest and largest list of names in Scripture, and there's nothing like this in the literature are the history of the world. It begins with Adam and goes to Christ. It begins with the first Adam and goes to the last Adam, the last book in the Hebrew Bible, the greatest genealogical table that's in existence. And all of us are in the same family, we find out from this. So that today there's no one that can follow his genealogy all the way back to Adam but most of us can tell more or less the route that we go back to Adam. Many of us go back through Japheth. Some of us go back through Ham, and some of us go back through Shem. But we all go back to Adam. These are remarkable genealogies. Now, First Chronicles opened in the first eight chapters with one of the greatest genealogies that is on record anywhere. This is a genealogy... It goes all the way back to Adam, and it traces the children of Israel right back to Adam and traces them right up to the time that they were carried into captivity. In fact, that's the way chapter 9 opens. We have here these genealogies in the first nine chapters, and verse 1 goes like this. So all Israel was reckoned by genealogies. And behold, they were written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah who were carried away to Babylon for their transgression. Now, this is a tremendous statement, and it's quite a revelation, that there was on exhibit in the temple genealogies, the genealogies of these people, and actually the genealogies of each tribe. And you go through it. I told you very candidly, I didn't intend to read all those names. 
on the radio. I guess I'd turn enough people off a radio anyway, but to read these names, we'd have nobody listening. But, well, we just have nobody listening, that's all. And we find that God makes it very clear here that he has given them these genealogies, and they're important. Now, they were registered until they went away into captivity. Then there was a certain amount of confusion. When they came back, they continued in the rebuilt temple to carry these genealogies. Now, at the time that the Lord Jesus was born, those genealogies were on exhibit in the temple. You could have gone in and checked up on them. And you can be sure of one thing, that the enemy in that day went in and checked the genealogy, the one you got in Matthew, or the one that's in Luke, to see whether it was accurate or not. Now, as far as we know, there never was an attack made upon the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was accurate and it was on display. Now, when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., apparently all those genealogies disappeared. They were destroyed at that time. And it was a tremendous record, by the way. And here in 1 Chronicles now, you have it brought up to the time of the Babylonian captivity. But it was continued until the time that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. And after him... There was the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 A.D., and the records now disappear. Why? Well, God was interested in giving you the family of the Lord Jesus Christ, interested in making it very clear to us that he was very man of very man. He came in the line of Adam, and he is the last Adam. There won't be a third one. He heads up the last family. Here, only two families, the family of Adam, and that family is a lost family. You and I belong to it. We weren't born into this world, lovely, beautiful, sweet people. We actually were sinners, alienated from God, no capacity for God. And friends, isn't it obvious to look around the world today? In China, are they looking and searching for God? Well, if they are, they sure haven't found him. They haven't found him in India, worshiping old cow down there. And man is made actually a cartoon of God in all of the pictures he's attempted to make of God. And now we're told that the Godhead is not to be made a picture of. That's the one thing God was teaching Israel. And these people became alienated from God so that the entire human family is in that. In Adam, all die. You and I belong to that family. It's a pretty dismal prospect that we have in Adam. But we have a hope in Christ, and he is the last Adam. Now, he's the second man, because the Lord's going to make a whole lot of other men in this new family, the family of God today. And that genealogy goes right back to the one That is born of the Spirit. Now, are you today, can you say, I came to Christ and trusted Him? He's my Savior, and the Spirit of God has made Him real to me today. He's my Savior. Now, if you can say that, then you belong to the last Adam's family. And that's a family in which there's life. 
He brings life. He said that. That's what he brought. He said, I am the life. And he said, I've come that you might have life. You might have it abundantly, not just existing, not just a trip on marijuana or other drugs, but a real trip. In fact, the matter is a trip that will eventuate in a trip to heaven, into his presence. And he's going to come and get his own someday. Now, in the rest of this chapter, the emphasis is upon the tribe of Levi. And we are given in verse 2 something concerning them. Now, the first inhabitants that dwelt in their possession in their cities were the Israelites, the priests. Now, it means the first of the Israelites was of the tribe of Levi. First, the priests, those that had the service of God. Not all of the tribe of Levi served in the priesthood. Actually, the family of Aaron. And then we find that these others had the service of it. They prepared the offerings. They had a great deal to do with the ritual that took place. And they were more or less the custodian of the temple. And then we have the Nethanines. That just means servants. Could have been slaves, by the way. There's always been a question whether Israel had slaves. I think they did, but not of their own brethren. And that is exactly what the Gibeonites had become. Now, they were used in the service of the temple. Well, let me put it like this. They swept the place out. They polished the brass. They did things like that. And the Nethanims were the servants. And actually, we have here the families given. And they were the ones that served. Now, verse 33 says, And these are the singers, chief of the fathers of the Levites, who remaining in the chambers were free, for they were employed in that work day and night. Now, there was a great deal of singing that went on. And that was led by a certain one of the Levites. I could know one thing. If I was an Israelite, I'd sure know I didn't belong to the tribe of Levi because I can't sing. And I am of the opinion that they developed music to a very high degree. In fact, that was something that David was very much interested in. And then something that's quite interesting, we have then at the conclusion of this chapter the family of Saul given. And it follows through Saul and his son Jonathan. That's quite remarkable. He was a king. He was a king for just a brief time. I'd like for you to notice something here in these first nine chapters. Nine chapters of genealogies. His children. Whose children? Adam's children. It's the longest genealogy in Scripture, and it's remarkable because it's the longest and largest list of names in Scripture, and there's nothing like this in the literature or the history of the world. It begins with Adam and goes to Christ. It begins with the first Adam and goes to the last Adam, the last book in the Hebrew Bible, the greatest genealogical table that's in existence, and all of us in the same family, we find out from this. None can trace his genealogy. Now, those genealogies 
were preserved and brought back to Jerusalem, and they were in existence in the temple until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus. And it all disappeared then so that today there's no one that can follow his genealogy all the way back to Adam. But most of us can tell more or less the route that we go back to Adam. Many of us go back through Japheth. Some of us go back through Ham, and some of us go back through Shem. But we all go back to Adam. These are remarkable genealogies. And one of the things that is important is the glaring omissions. Cain and his family are not even mentioned. Didn't Adam have a son by the name of Cain? Yes, but he's not in here because that line ran out. It was destroyed in the flood. It ended. Now, there are omissions, I think, in all the genealogical tables, even in Genesis. I don't think that the Spirit of God intended to give us all of them. After all, what he's given is pretty monotonous to read, friends. Nothing in the world but a roll call, one name after another. But this may throw light on a very important question. How old is mankind? I think mankind is older than 6,000 years. I think he's been on this earth a long time. But when God created him, he was Adam. He was a man, not a monkey. You know that well-known cartoon? It's rather satirical, takeoff on the ridiculous theory of evolution and man's vaunted civilization and his so-called progress. And it has a scene of devastation. An atom bomb has been exploded. And man has at last destroyed himself. All the atomic bombs have been exploded. The last vestige of life disappeared, with one exception. And there are two monkeys that are sitting in a tree stripped of all its leaves, most of its limbs. There they sit. They survey this scene of desolation. All life has disappeared. And the caption of the cartoon is, Now we are going to have to go all over this again. And I say to you, how ridiculous. Man, to begin with, is not going to commit suicide. The Lord Jesus said he wouldn't let them. That if it were possible, that all flesh should be destroyed. But he said those days will be shortened because God won't let man do that. Now, this genealogy is interesting. I don't think it's exciting to read, but it's one that's thrilling. It has a message for us today. And it's inspired as much as John 3.16 is. Now, we've come a long ways. Let's look back to Adam. Was God right about man? Have things come to pass as God said they would? You know, psychology attempts to tabulate and classify man according to his IQ. It's a rather mechanical device, of course. And it classifies him mechanically and according to his achievement and his aptitudes. And they have on that chart they make normal. One end of it's subnormal. The other end is supernormal or geniuses. Now, God's tests are different. All must come in under his classification. And you know what God says? God says none of them are normal. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. And there are three universal facts must be true in relationship to man. And there's no exception. There's no deviation here. First of all, Adam and all his children must die. 
God said to him, in the day you eat thereof, you're going to die. Now, God didn't create man to die. We're told, by man came death, and death's passed upon all men. In Adam all die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And the very interesting thing is that this earth you and I live on today is not in the world but a great big graveyard. David said, I go the way of all the earth. And all the freeways eventually lead to the cemetery. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's a picture of man going through life. Like a monster, death stalks this earth. Now, there are three kinds of death. That's physical death. And Adam didn't die till 900 years after he ate, but he died spiritually. That means separation. Death means separation. Physical death is separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death means the separation of man from God. And eternal death means the separation of man from God eternally. And I think that's what hell's going to be. It's a place where God never goes, friends. There's no blessing and mercy and love of God there. Now, will you notice there's another great truth. Adam and all his children are sinners. That's a picture of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the proof of it is that, as we've seen, they all die. In Adam, all die. All sinned in Adam. And Abraham was a good man, but Abraham was a sinner. Ishmael is an evidence of that. Caleb was a good man, outstanding man, but he had his concubine. Sin has driven man from God, and he's in open rebellion against God. He's gone out, as Cain has, from the presence of the Lord. Over in Isaiah, the 59th chapter, and if you've never read that chapter, you ought to read it. Here's what Isaiah says in the second verse of Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Adam and his children are sinners, separated from God. Sin is a scourge, a sickness, a plague. It's infected the race. Polio's bad, but only a few have polio. A heart condition is bad, but only a few have heart trouble. Cancer's terrible. I know it from personal experience. But friends, very few of the human family have cancer. But all have sinned. That's a picture of man today. And then Adam and all his children, they've obtained mercy. <laughs> Enoch was saved. How? Well, by faith. Enoch, you know, walked with God. And he was translated. But will Enoch be one of the two witnesses? I can't help but believe he will be. I wouldn't want to be dogmatic in that because in Adam all die. And I think he's yet to die. And the two witnesses die, you remember. Noah, by faith, he was a good man, but he wasn't saved because of that. He, it was by faith Noah did what he did. Abraham was a good man, but Abraham believed God, and it was counted him for righteousness because Abraham was a sinner. And that's the problem in the Near East today. You say, I mean, Abraham was a sinner is the problem? Sure, if he hadn't taken that little... Egyptian made Hagar and listened to Sarah and brought Ishmael into the world, you wouldn't have the Arabs over there today. But you see, that was the problem. 
And then David was a great man of God. But my, we all agree David was a sinner. There's one grand exception to that. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have to die. You'll recall he says, which of you convinceth me of sin? And nobody can convince him. He says, no man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. The Lord Jesus Christ is the exception to that. God is rich today in mercy, we're told. Paul said to the Ephesians, God is rich in mercy. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 1 Peter 1, 3, abundant mercy. And our God has made it possible for the children of Adam to obtain mercy. Have you received mercy from the hand of God yet? It's there for you. This is just part of the message that we find here in these first, actually, eight chapters of First Chronicles. It's a genealogy. It's the family of Adam. You and I in it. We all belong to the same race. We're all fallen. We're all on an equality. We're all born equal in this sense. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. And salvation is for mankind. What a glorious thing this genealogy is here. It's the global genealogy. Now, when we come to chapter 10, for the first time, we are beginning to see the distinction that God is making between the books of Samuel and Kings and the book of Chronicles. Now, in the book of Samuel, we have a great deal about King Saul. In fact, his entire history is given that. Now, from God's viewpoint, we have now only one chapter given. I'm of the opinion that a great many men today, and women for that matter, that have occupied a large place in human history, they won't get much of a write-up in heaven. That's true of Saul here. He got one chapter here. The rest of it's all about David in First Chronicles. Then in Second Chronicles, all about David's family. David is the subject, but not Saul. And yet, down here, from the human viewpoint, Saul occupied a very prominent place. It's amazing that some of the great men of this world apparently don't have very much of a place as far as God is concerned. They turn their back upon him. This is an amazing chapter for that reason. Just one chapter given to Saul. And what's it about? Probably the Lord picked out some of the outstanding feats that he performed. No, because works never commend you to God. So it's not that. Actually, it's the death of Saul, how he was slain. And we have something told us here that's the most amazing thing in the world. Now, you will recall that when we were back in First and Second Samuel, we attempted to determine who slew Saul, who was the one that was responsible for his murder, or did he commit suicide? And actually, the record back in the two books of Samuel goes something like this. He was wounded, that is, mortally wounded, in battle with the Philistine. Some Philistine gave him a mortal blow. And he said to his servant, I don't want to be killed by a Philistine. You take your sword and run it through me. And he wouldn't do it. The servant said, no, he would not do it at all. 
And as a result, why, Saul was able to fall on his own sword. And was he able to kill himself? Was he physically able to do it? Well, that's always been a question. Well, then there came along an Amalekite and saw the situation. He went to David and he claimed that when he arrived, Saul was still alive and he slew him. And David slew this Amalekite because he said, out of your own mouth, you've condemned yourself. Now, who's responsible for the death of King Saul? Now, actually, with a case like this, you just about need the FBI. But I don't think that we'll need to call them in because we're going to have a confession of the one who actually took the life of Saul. Who is responsible? All right, now let's read this chapter. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul, after his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went sore against Saul. And the archers hit him. He was wounded of the archers. Apparently... Did not die. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. So Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on the sword, and he died. So Saul died and his three sons. And all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel that were in the valley saw that they fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, then they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Now, I assume from this record that when that Amalekite came along, Saul was already dead, and he went into the presence of David because he knew that David and Saul were enemies, to take credit for the slaying of Saul. He thought probably David would bestow upon him some honor and give him some reward. And he didn't dream that he was going to get what really came to him, which was, David said, out of your own mouth you condemned yourself and you slain the king. And he executed him on the confession of the man. But apparently the man was not guilty. And he was very foolish in taking credit for something that he should not have taken credit for at all or take the blame for, because that's what it amounted to when he got in the presence of David. Now, will you notice, verse 8, "...it came to pass on the morrow, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his sons fallen in Mount Gilboa." And when they had stripped him, they took his head and his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to carry tidings unto their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Now, they did this terrible dishonor to him. I was in Ascalon at the temple of Dagon. Samson, you know, had been there. And apparently this is where Saul was. 
And that is where they brought his head and his armor. Now, when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, they arose, all the valiant men, took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, brought them to Jabesh, and buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. Now, somebody says, does that clear the case? No. Who really is responsible? Now, I want to read a very important verse that you might pass over here in the Scripture. In fact, these last two verses of chapter 10. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him, and turn the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. Now, who was it that slew Saul? Well, he inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him. Who's he? The Lord. The Lord is the one who took his life. The Lord hath given, and the Lord hath taken away. Now, the Lord takes the responsibility. God says, I removed Saul. I executed him. Now, maybe you want to find fault with the Lord. Maybe you want to have him arrested for murder. He has taken many a one. And by the way, that's the reason God says that you and I are never to take human life. You know why? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Until you and I can give life, we have no business taking that life away. Only God can give life, and God can take away. And for him, it's not murder. It's murder for you and me. And he says that life is to be surrendered. When you take the life of another human being, you have no right to do that. And that is a great sin. So that that Amalekite was executed for. And why was Saul executed? He died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. Now, what is the great sin, therefore? The sin that God will bring capital punishment, and he'll do the executing, and he doesn't mind taking responsibility. He took Ananias and Sapphira. A great many people give Simon Peter credit for that. Simon Peter was the most surprised person there that day when they fell down dead or at least when Ananias did. He didn't dream that would happen. But God takes responsibility for that. There is a sin unto death. And this man died because of his transgression. Many times God reaches in and takes a human life because of that. And he took the human life of this man. I've lived long enough now that I can look back. And many times, many times, I've seen God put a man aside in many ways. He can just put him on the shelf. He can put him out of his service. Or he can remove him actually from an office. God moves in the affairs of man. He hasn't abdicated today. He's still running the universe. It's his universe. And by the way, he'll run his way. If he wants to remove this one, that'll be his business, not yours or mine. And he's not accountable to us. 
but we are accountable to him. And he's the one that calls the shot. He is the one who's the umpire. He's the one that makes the decisions. And this man didn't inquire of the Lord. He turned to the underworld. And by the way, who are you listening to today? Who are you listening to? You hear God's voice today? Are you listening to man's voice or actually to Satan's voice? This is the thing that causes God to move into the affairs of man. What a chapter this is. It gives us heaven's light on a very mooted subject. Now we've come to the 11th chapter of First Chronicles, and those of you who are following this study with our notes know that now we've come to the third major division of this book. In the first nine chapter, we had this remarkable genealogy, or I should use the plural, genealogies. And they were indeed remarkable. And we have here something that we believe is very important, just one chapter on Saul. From God's viewpoint, he didn't make near the splash that I'm sure that many in that day thought that he did. From God's viewpoint, why, here is a man that did not impress the Lord at all. But now beginning here with chapter 11, where we begin today, you will find that we have first in the first two chapters here, chapters 11 and 12, David's mighty man. And we have then in chapters 13 through 16, David and the ark. And then chapter 17, David and the temple. Then we have David's wars, chapters 18 to 20. And then we have David's sin and numbering the people, chapter 21. And then David's preparation and organization for building the temple, chapters 22 through 29. Now, the remainder of this book, then, is about David's reign. It's all about David. And in fact, the matter is the genealogy that's given to us is the genealogy that brings us up to David and, of course, beyond David, the family of David. That is the one that becomes all important now in this book. And we'll see David's family in the next book of Second Chronicles. And we see that the line that is followed there is David's line. Very little attention given to the northern kingdom after they rebelled and withdrew from the reign of David's family. Now, this is a very important section, therefore, and the emphasis now is upon David. And it'd be well to note as we go along the emphasis that God gives here to certain things and other things in David's life that are played down. Now, you'll notice I said David's sin in chapter 21, but it hadn't anything to do with Bathsheba. He numbered the people. Now, that is not dwelt upon elsewhere. And I would say that in God's sight, this was the greatest sin, and this is the one that he noted, by the way. I'm of the opinion that there are great many folk today, great many Christians, that consider certain things sin. And other things they don't consider sin. And they're going to get in his presence someday and find out that they were all mixed up in this connection, that they were not near as sure as they thought there was. What they thought was a great sin may not have been one. 
and what they thought was something that was very slight, unimportant, God put it down as a sin. Now, David's life, everybody could point their finger at David relative to Bathsheba. And God punished him for it. It was a terrible sin, but God forgave him of that because he came in confession to the Lord. And God forgave him. But this matter of numbering the people, now that doesn't seem to be a bad sin. But we're going to see that it was rather important as far as God is concerned, and we'll see why. It might be well for many of us to get a different perspective of what sin really is. That is, sin in the sense of acts, certain things that you do and certain things that we don't do. We saw that especially, you will recall, in the epistle to the Romans and the great principle that God puts down there for us. Now, let me begin here in chapter 11. The emphasis here is upon David's mighty man. We're going to see now how he became king. We read, Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Now, you'll recall that back in the other double books, when we had this history given to us, we were told that for seven years, David only reigned over the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and that he reigned in Hebron. Well, now, that's passed over. Why? Because God looks at them as a nation, all 12 tribes. And in God's book, the time that he really became king is when he became king of all 12 tribes. And all Israel accepted him. They said, we're bone of your bone, we're flesh of your flesh. Now, verse 2, And moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Now you see, they're acknowledging the hand of God. And he does not become king until the people accept him as being God's choice. And that began seven years after he began to reign after the death of Saul. Verse 3, Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king to Hebron. And David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Now he's made king over all 12 tribes. And as far as God is concerned, that's when he began to reign. Now, we were told he reigned over the two tribes seven years, but not here. Verse 4, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. Now, David had inspected that land. I think that he'd probably been over that land with a fine-tooth comb and knew it better than the spies that were sent in by Joshua. He knew a great deal about it. And Jerusalem was the city that he picked to become the capital. It was to be the place where the temple was to be built. David made this city the capital. It was his choice, and it was the Lord's choice. A great deal is said in the Word of God about the city of Jerusalem. Now, it's not the city of Jerusalem as we see it today. 
there at the place, the corner of the temple, the wall there at the corner of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple is where Satan took the Lord Jesus. And they've excavated down there now, and they found out that the wall actually in early times went the opposite direction than the way it goes today. The city of David was down below, and you always looked up to the temple. But later on, when it was moved, that is, the walls were put up on Mount Zion and higher up. Actually, you look down at the temple from there, and that's the way it is today. A great deal of the city of Jerusalem is above the temple area. Now, the temple area is Mount Moriah, and it goes like a ridge right through Jerusalem, the city today. And over there outside of the wall, on that ridge, is where Golgotha is, the place of a skull where Jesus was crucified. Now, this is the place that David picked. And David took the castle of Zion. It was there where his palace was built, Mount Zion was the place that was very precious to David. Now you'll notice, verse 6, And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab the son of Zeruah went first up, and he was chief. Now this man is the number one man in the service of David. He was the man that was number one man, I think, his advisor, and number one man that led the army. And he belonged to the mighty man of David. You'll recall that we're told something about his exploits when he first came to David, how he led the army, and how he fought for David. And this man, therefore, he became the captain. He was the one that was in charge of the Pentagon in David's day. He had charge of all of the brass, the army and the navy and whatever else they might have around. He had charge of it. Now, we're going to be given the list of David's mighty men and the exploits that they did. We'll see that in just a moment. Notice verse 7, "...and David dwelt in the castle..." Therefore, they called it the city of David. Now, the city of David actually is the Mount Zion area. David loved that place. Well, apparently, it was where his palace was built by Hiram. And he built the city round about, even from Milo round about, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. Now, Joab is not only a soldier, but he's a contractor. He's the one that had charge of the repairing of the city. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, he brought the kingdom to its zenith. Actually, it's my feeling that in any study of ancient history, when you look at the great nations of the world, like Egypt, or Babylon, or Persia, or the Hittite nation, even before all of these others, that you need to remember that David brought these people up to the place where it was a great kingdom and had great influence throughout the world. It was the basis on which Solomon was able to bring a witness to the world of that day. Now we are given the list of the catalog of David's mighty men. Now that seems strange that right here that we have that given. 
Now, these are the men who came to David during the time of his rejection. And now that he has been elevated to the place of kingship, these men are elevated also. Now, may I say the corollary here with the Lord Jesus Christ is something you just can't pass by. The Lord Jesus Christ today is calling out a people to his name. There is mighty men. These are the days of his rejection. Just as David was rejected, he was to be king. But he hadn't come to the throne yet because Saul was reigning. And God gave Saul every opportunity to make good, and he didn't. And so David was in a period of rejection, but he gathered his mighty man. Now, Christ today is rejected by the world. You don't have to labor to make that point. If you can't see that, you can't see anything. You and I live in a world where the Lord Jesus Christ is rejected. But during this period, he's calling out a people to his name. But he's the king. One of these days, he's coming to the place of rulership. Now, he is our Lord and our Master, our Savior today. So we have to wait until he comes to the place of kingship. Then we're told we're to reign with him. But if he's rejected... I don't know why in the world believers want to try to become the most popular person in town. You can't be. The Lord Jesus said, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. <laughs> and my friend, if you're popular today, I remember that the late Dr. Bob Shuler here in Los Angeles, he used to say, told me this on one occasion. I've heard him say it publicly. He said, I judge a man not by the friends he has, but by the enemies he has. And if you've got the right kind of enemies, you're all right. I want to make sure always that the devil's crowd doesn't like me. I'm very happy to be able to say today that those that don't like Bible study, that was always true in the church. Those that were against Bible study hated to study the Word. Now, they carried a big Bible and were very pious, but they really hated to study the Word. I'm glad that I was not their friend because... I insisted on Bible study, you see. And you judge by your enemies. Who are your enemies today? Now, we're in the period of the rejection of Christ. But he's calling out his mighty man. Now, there are three groups here that I'd like to call particular attention to. I've mentioned one group before. And the ones that we had before are actually the ones, three of them. And they're the ones that brought water from the well at Bethlehem to David. And this is a tremendous story. Verse 16, And David was then in the hole, and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. This was the time of his rejection. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water, the well of Bethlehem, that is at the gate. And the three brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it brought it to David. But David would not drink of it, but poured it out to the Lord and said, My God forbid it me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? For with the jeopardy of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mightiest. Now these men are singled out as being the mightiest. And what you have here 
is a wonderful picture. You see, David had been brought up in Bethlehem. That was his hometown. There was a well there at the entrance. And many a time when he'd been out with his sheep, came back thirsty, he stopped at that well to get a drink. Now the Philistines have him holed up, and he can't get to that well. But he said, I sure would like to have a drink from that well. It was just a wish, not even a command. And so these three men, they broke through the lines of the Philistines, got the water, and brought it to David. But the interesting thing is that David wouldn't accept it. That is, he wouldn't drink it. He accepted it and just poured it out as a drink offering. And my, what a picture that we have here. The water from the well at Bethlehem. Now, what's that water from the well? It's none other than Christ. And just think of the exploits of bravery by those down through the centuries who've gone after the water to take it to a thirsty world today. I think of men like Henry Martin and David Livingston, Adoniram Judson of the past, and I think of many wonderful missionaries. I've been down in Mexico, and I've been down in South America, and I've been in Africa, and I've been in Asia, and I've been in Europe. And I've seen these people that have gone out there, left home and everything. I tell you, they had to go through a barrier in order to get the Word of God out. And I think the Lord has taken note of them, by the way. And these three mighty men, they broke through the enemy lines. And the very wonderful thing that they did. And then notice what David did with the water. It was a strange wish, was not a command. But our Lord's given us a command to go and take the gospel. But do you notice what he did? David was unselfish. No wonder that man loved him. No wonder they were willing to suffer with him because he was willing to suffer with them. He wouldn't take that drink because those men didn't have water, and he just took his place with them. He recognized the bravery of the man. Remember the Lord Jesus said on the cross, I'm poured out like water. That's what Psalm 22 says. He took his life and he poured it out like water on the ground. And he today took his place down here. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And they tell us in World War II that they wanted to get a line through. A shell had broken this line through, and there was not communication between headquarters. And they sent a soldier out, and then he made the connection, and he didn't come back. And so after the battle was won, they found him. He was frozen in death, but he was holding those two wires together. He'd made contact. May I say to you today, the Lord Jesus is the one that he was poured out like water. He made the sacrifice. And I tell you, we're to make a sacrifice if we today are to be rewarded of him. This idea today that will reward anyone. Then there's a third incident here. And I've always appreciated this one. It's Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day. And I love that one. This actually is something that is quite interesting because this man slew a lion. And you know, when he did it, he did it on a snowy day. My, I tell you, it's wonderful to have officers in a church that come out when it's raining. <laughs> 
and come out on Sunday night into the midweek service. Our Lord takes note of that. And then we have in chapter 12, and I'm going to lift out just one incident there. There was some men that belonged to the tribe of Gad, and we're told in verse 15 of chapter 12, These are they that went over Jordan in the first month, when it had overflown all his banks. And they put to flight all them of the valleys, both toward the east and toward the west. And there came of the children of Benjamin and Judah to the hold unto David. David went out to meet them and answered and said unto them, If ye become peaceably unto me to help me, mine heart shall be knit unto you. But if ye come to betray me to mine enemies, seeing there's no wrong in mine hands, the God of our fathers look thereon and rebuke it. And the Spirit came upon Amasai, who was chief of the captains. And he said, Thine are we, David, and on thy side, thou son of Jesse, Peace, peace be unto thee, and peace be to thine helpers. For thy God helpeth thee. Then David received them, made them captains of the band. Now, here are a group of men that came to David, and they swam the Jordan River at flood tide. They're just about to give out. David goes down. He doesn't know whether they're friend or enemy. He said, now, if you mean to harm me, he said, I'll destroy you. And they said, oh, no, David, we've come over to be on your side. How wonderful this is. I don't think this is consecration. I think this is service. They wanted to live for David. They wanted to be on his side. You know, the greatest problems of the Christian actually are not service. A great many folk think they just got to be busy. But that's not our problem. Do you want to live for Christ? And that's what these men said. David, we want to be on your side. We want to live for you. We want to yield ourselves to you. May I say that he brought you over Jordan by his death and resurrection. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. But you have to return to the world to live the Christian life. And in heaven you're going to live a Christian life, but he wants you to live it right down here now. He says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you'd keep them from the evil one right here and now. And this is the only place you'll ever have an opportunity to live the Christian life, friend, is right down here today. And this idea today, that to live the Christian life is a cheap sort of a thing, and it's a little mealy mouth type of thing, and it's a life of compromise and pussyfooting and hypocrisy, you're dead wrong, my friend. You're going to have to swim the water. You're going to have to go to David. You'll have to go to the one that's greater than David, to the Lord Jesus, and surrender to him. Oh, what a joy it is to be in his service.